Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. A little, a little light here this morning, but some are, some are not wanting to travel, I suppose. But uh, with winter blast, that took some of them out. So, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am He. I am He who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. Isaiah 46, 4. Communion today, following the morning service, uh, as is our custom, take a 10-minute break and regather when you hear the music. No dinner, no choir, no evening service. Bible study, prayer meeting, the blast is just about over. Uh, you might pray for traveling mercies. And the new acts and facts are here for February. What else? That seems like not a lot of things today. <laughs> it seems like I've missed something. <laughs> if not, then our um, responsive reading this morning is uh, taken from page 838 in the Trinity, Psalm 145. you'll stand with me, we'll read together. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can have. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. So that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. 
He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Ask that God would give his blessing to his word. George, would you open for us this morning? morning, take your red Trinity hymnal and turn to page 457, 457 in the red. Dr. Ed, be nice to us. 520, I'm sorry. 521, I say be nice to us because Jared's not here. <laughs> 521, do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? Well, in Sunday school, they were talking about Dan 
steps of Islam. And, and then George mentioned the solace that we have in our Lord in the prayer. Uh, it's with great relief. My, is, my, my hope is built on that. Amen. reading this morning is from Isaiah, 46th chapter, and we'll be reading verses 3 through 13. <coughs> Isaiah 46, 3 through 13, it's on page 1168, <coughs> ask that the Lord would Bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth, even to your old age and gray hairs. I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. To whom 
will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place, and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Though one cries out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save him from his troubles. Remember this, fix it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times. What is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are far from righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor of it to Israel. Pray that the Lord would bless his word. Take your red hymnal again and turn to 618, 618. <coughs> Oh, I may see. 
Our scripture text this morning is found in Isaiah 46. <clears throat> Last Lord's Day we talked about the pain of unconditional love because in unconditional love you may love someone... And they may not respond to you in a loving way. You may treat them with honor and respect, and they may treat you with envy and hatred. Such love is painful, but it is what the Lord has called us to. We are to be like him. I think one of the nails in the coffins of those who hate and reject Christ will be that they have spurned the love of God. Let me read it for you from Paul in the book of Romans. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Romans 2, verses 4 through 6. We're responsible for the goodness and kindness that God pours out upon us. And if we're stubborn-hearted and reject that, it's not that that goes unnoticed. It's storing up wrath against yourself. In the day of judgment. We learn that if we only love others with conditional love. We do no more than the pagans who do the very same thing. They love people that love them. This is sinner love. That only loves those who love us in return. But God's love is selfless. Not self-centered. 
We learned how to deal, or some of the principles of unconditional love. We listed three things. Number one, do good to those who hate you. That's Luke 6, verse 27. Luke was our text, Luke 6. Secondly, bless those who curse you. And number three, pray for those who mistreat you. Now you can see all of those are kind of one-sided, aren't they? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And it's not saying in any way that they're going to respond back to you in a certain way. But that is our obligation. This was Christ, our Lord. And we are to follow in his footsteps. Now we're moving towards the close of this series, but uh, believers under trial. But today we want to consider the hurt or the pain of natural, natural life changes. Things that happen in everyday life. And how they affect us as Christians and what our response should be. So as we come, let's ask the Lord to enable us. Holy Spirit, please come upon us in this hour, and we pray that you will bless us with an understanding of your word and also an ability to mimic Christ. Some of the things we talk about here are really, they're, they're beyond us in terms of our sinful nature. They're not easy to do. We... Um, we struggle with these things, but we know we're called to a higher calling. But in addition to that, we are endued with the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can help us be holy in our behavior when we would otherwise not be. So Lord, teach us this, these principles. We thank you for Jesus and his example. We thank you for his Holy Spirit. Bless us and teach us in this hour of him even more. And to think of our communion service to come as we remember what it costs God to get us to the place where we would love you, heart, mind, and soul. Bless the kids at camp. Give them safety on their way home. Some of them all going all the way back to Ohio. We pray your blessing upon them in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking this morning at the hurt of natural life Changes And by natural life changes, I mean those things that come your way as part of living. Things like having to move away from friends and family. Things like old age setting in. Loss of job or financial solvency. Death or injury of a loved one. Loss of your dream. I'm going to deal with the hurt of physical illness in a, in a separate message. But even in this, poor health is part of the natural life changes that all of us have experienced or we will experience. I know, I hear once in a while somebody say, I've never been sick a day in my life. Well, praise the Lord. Thank, thank the Lord for that. But normally, we will experience these things in some shape or form. Normally, we anticipate that life will have some bumps in the road along the way, but not such horrendous events that force us to reassess the direction of our lives and would surely challenge our faith in God. These are bad things from our viewpoint. And the difficulty we face is reconciling them with the love of God. 
But keep in mind, as I said earlier, these are natural life changes. That means that all men experience them, not just believers. But how we as Christians handle them, that'll speak of the genuineness or lack thereof of our faith and our understanding of the providence of God. So yeah, although all men experience these things, we don't all handle it the same way. And as Christians, we want to handle life's experiences to the glory of God. Consider then, firstly, the loss of the optimism of a brighter future, or to say it another way, the loss of your dream. Do you have a dream concerning your future? I mean, here on earth, do you have a certain things you want to get accomplished? Well, what if they don't materialize? Then what? We usually attribute such optimism to youth. We speak of the starry-eyed teenager who sees the world as something just waiting for him or her to conquer. They think they're invincible, and so they drive 90 miles an hour on a dirt road late at night with no seatbelt and no regard for hills and turns and blind spots, and whammo, just over the crest of the hill, they plow broadside into a deer that wipes out the entire front of the car and causes it to career into a ditch. The occupants are tossed through the windshield, and in the hospital, one teenager loses his right leg, and another suffers from a broken arm. Now, now, the future doesn't look bright at all. The accident has spoiled everything. The young man who lost his leg was working on a scholarship to Michigan State to tr in track and field. But now the scholarship is rescinded. He's lost his leg. Can a person walk with one leg? Well, yeah, absolutely. Can they learn to run? with metallic prosthesis. Absolutely. We saw it happen in the Summer Olympics in London when Oscar Pistorius, representing South Africa, he was born with no fibula bones in either legs. He was filled, fitted, excuse me, with two metallic spring-like feet that enabled him to run in the Olympics for his country. Now, he didn't win anything, but that's not the point. The point was he was able to fulfill a dream and to win international admiration and praise for his courage, for his stamina, the spirit of camaraderie. I mean, lesser men would have been ruined for life and they, they would have given up on any idea of running in the Olympics. Now, in later life, he's had his problems, you know, as you know, with the law, those kind of things. But he's to be commended for endeavoring to learn how to work and run and so forth with prosthetic legs. It's important to note that people of the world can determine to fight their handicaps and, and attempt to overcome them. I like that ad on television for St. Jude's Children's Hospital. I love those little guys walking with no legs or 
prosthesis or shriveled up hands or whatever. And probably all of you have seen one or more of the wounded warrior ads on TV in which Trace Atkins highlights men and women who have returned from battle in Afghanistan with horrendous war injuries that range from limbs lost to neurological problems and so on. And yet these people enter therapy with a disposition not to let their unforeseen injury or handicap defeat them and ruin their lives. Human pride is at work here. The media calls it the noble human spirit. The spirit of self-determination. Not everyone has this. Some by nature are so demoralized by the dream changer that has come into their lives that they give up before they start. So is this our answer as Christians? Do we simply bite the bullet, dig in our heels, and resolve within ourselves that we can fight back and conquer any adversity that comes our way? We will get that prosthesis and we will train for that race, we say. We will do the agonizing and painful therapy to regain upper body strength, and on and on we say. As good as an outcome that this kind of energy may produce, it falls short of the biblical injuncture for believers, which is this. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. The unbeliever gives no credit to God for his or her recovery. They make statements such as, well, I worked very hard. Or I was, I was determined not to let this beat me. I knew I could do this if I, just, if I just applied myself and didn't give up. It's the way they speak. There is a sense, of course, in which a person whose dreams has been shattered must get a new vision for his or her life, but... As believers, our new vision does not leave God out of the picture. Consider another and very well-known victim of handicap, and I'm thinking of Johnny Erickson Tata. As a young teenager, she unwittingly dove into shallow water beneath which was hidden a sizable rock on which she hit her head. Must have been pretty hard because this damaged her spinal cord irreparably and she became a quadriplegic confined to a wheelchair for life. She thought her life was over. She did. But God saved her. God saved her and showed her that her life had just begun. Yeah, just begun. Now listen, God did not heal her damaged spinal cord. He didn't heal her. She was never 
given back the mobility of her limbs. But she learned to paint beautiful artwork holding the brush between her teeth. She studied the scriptures and became adept at public speaking because she could, everything from here up, from her shoulders up, worked. It's just from here, here down, nothing was under her control. Today she's on the platform at Bible conferences with notable Bible expositors, not simply to tell how she has overcome her handicap, but to give forth the gospel and to give glory to God for what he has done in her life. And she means it. She means it. She's not being melodramatic, but openly and honestly thankful to God for the life she lives, which brings glory to God. This is a good place to ask the question. Is there such a thing as an accident in a world controlled by God? Think about that. Is there such a thing as accident in a world controlled by God? I looked up the word accident in the dictionary. Here's what it says. An event occurring by chance or unknown causes. Second definition, an unforeseen or unplanned event. This is the explanation the world envisions because there is no recognition of a sovereign God or if they believe in God, it is not the God of the Bible. They attribute good things to God and bad things to the devil as though there were two deities competing with one another, equally powerful, equally in control. Some do this thinking they are protecting God from wicked accusations. You know, the bad things happen, but that's the devil working, and the good things that happen, that's God working. In actuality, though, they're robbing God of his sovereignty. God doesn't need your defense, He does not need your protection. What he wants is an acknowledgement from you of who and what he is. Well, what is he? Ezekiel tells us at God's own words. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Strike your hands together, stamp your feet, cry out, alas, because of all the wicked and detestable practices of the house of Israel. For they will fall by the sword, famine, and plague. He that is far away will die of the plague, and he that is near will f fall by the sword. And he that survives and is spared will die of famine. So will I spend my wrath upon them. Ezekiel 6, verse 11 and 12. Again, see now that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare. As surely as I live forever. When I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasp it in judgment. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay them who hate me. Deuteronomy 32 verse 39 and following. Eliphaz said of God. Blessed is the man who. Whom God corrects, 
So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also builds up. He injures, but he's, his hand also heals. Job 5, verse 17 and 18. One of the verses in Hannah's song reads this way. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's and upon them he has set the world. 1 Samuel 2, verse 6 through 8. You read places like this and there's no idea here of people living their lives being ruled by chance or fate. There are no accidents. We use the word loosely to describe what has happened as being an unplanned event. But is it unplanned? Is there no plan? Well, there is a plan, and behind that, a planner who willingly takes credit for both the good and the bad which comes into people's lives. And by bad, we do not mean that which is morally evil. God is not morally evil, nor does he participate in such. By bad, we mean those calamities that God sends on people as a means of correction in the case of believers who are being disciplined or judgment as in the case of the wicked. Floods, sicknesses, injuries, financial reversals, loss of freedom, the bad things that God himself oversees and dispenses as he deems best. And as he says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, no one can deliver out of my hand. No one. So when your dreams seem to be shattered and you're hurting because your future looks dull, doesn't look too bright. Remember that God is behind it. Can I say it this way? Your God is behind it. Christ, your Savior, is behind it. And this being true, the promise of God is this. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to this? Paul answers, if God is for us, <laughs> who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Romans eight twenty-eight through 32. That means the believer's future is bright. It's bright. God is there. So you may have had loss to your dreams. That's just part of natural life changes. What about the loss of financial solvency? You had a job, but you lost it. You graduated from college with a degree, but no one will hire you. You had money in a retirement account, but the company... Big wigs diverted it to risky ventures in the stock market and you lost it all. Listed your son and daughter and grandchild on your joint savings account 
because you needed help managing your bills, but they went into the bank and cleared out your account. So, oh, that wouldn't happen. Let me tell you, me working with the senior groups in Lapeer, let me tell you, it's happened. I know of a man that lost $54,000 because his grandchild went in and cleared out the account. Now he has nothing to live on. Or you were counting on the equity of your home to be your nest egg for retirement years, but the housing values crashed, and now you owe more on the house than it's worth. On and on and on we go. But it is all bad news financially. We're not stupid. It's the love of money, which is a root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. But for money itself, we all know that we need money. We need commerce to purchase the necessities of life and pay our bills. And knowing this, however, can cause us some trouble. Since we know we need money, we may conclude that getting money is the all-important goal in life. And Paul does talk about that. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. What kind of grief? Well, a disallowance of God as our chief and primary benefactor, for one. Or to put it simply... Are you trusting your savings account or your business savvy or your portfolio to meet your needs? Or are you trusting God? Because you can lose all that other stuff in a heartbeat. Jesus addressed this issue in the Sermon on the Mount saying, Do not worry, saying, Oh, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans... Run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6, verse 31 and following. Now note that Jesus was not using the word worry like we sometimes do, meaning that we should not concern ourselves to have a job and work and earn our pay as though God were going to bless laziness and indolence. Oh, I don't worry about those things. No. The lazy and the indolent are warned in the scriptures. Paul says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 10. Work fair, not welfare. Or if you want it from the Old Testament, Solomon said, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, it has no overseer, no ruler. Yet it stores up its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? Proverbs 6, verse 6 through 9. Or if we swing the pendulum, the other extreme, there are people whose whole life ethic is what? Work, work, work. Where's dad? At work. I thought we were going on vacation he, while well, he's working. He changed the vacation. Work, work, work. 
The first sin issue issues from a false assumption that depending on God's promised benevolence means I don't have to work. God will take care of me. The second sin issues from trusting in our own ability to make money, even to the point of putting God on the back burner, as non-essential. Jesus taught no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, verse 24. I'm sure you recall Jesus' point in telling the parable of the rich man who tore down his old barns so that he could build bigger ones to amass even more produce and take life easy without a care in the world. But God required his soul that night. And his fortune did not benefit him one whit. And then the punchline was given by Christ himself. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. Luke 12, verse 21. Now again, God is not condemning having a savings account or a pension plan or some source of income for your future, what he is warring against is trusting in those temporal, fluid, volatile things as though they were in a state of being an unmovable rock of financial security. Nothing in this world is certain. Nothing. Especially in our day. Fortunes made in the stock market today can vanish tomorrow. And I don't care how good the stock market is. And of late, it's been doing very, very well. Solomon the wise man says, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. (laughs) Cast but a glance at riches and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Proverbs 23, verse 4. There is one rock, however, that will not move. David put it this way, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? You ought to put that on a plaque somewhere. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior from violent men you save me. Second Samuel 22, verse 2 and 3. Jesus taught, why do you call me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood came, the torrent struck the house, but could not shake it because it was well Luke 6, verse 46 and following. So by all means, strive to obtain a job, to earn wages, save part of what you earn, live below your means, but don't trust in any of these things because it is, as John told us, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. 1 John 2, verse 17. Our security, brethren, (coughs) 
where our care, our security is God, not our checkbook. And then what about the loss of the strength of youth and the onset of old age? Here's another variable that comes our way. <laughs> when you were 12 years old, you never thought about getting old, did you? You were having too much fun playing. When you're 15, you wish you were 20 and out from parental authority and control so you could do what you want to do and have your own friends. When you're 40, you are concerned about how secure your job is, how to support your family, what lies ahead in the economy and in the national politic. When you're 65, you're contemplating retirement and drawing Social Security, and you hope it'll be there for you and that there will be enough income to support you so you don't have to become a burden to your kids. And when you're 80, you anticipate going to be with God because your old bones just ache too much and your mental acuity has slipped to the point where a senior moment is the only moments you have anymore. While each of these phases in life have their own set of advantages and disadvantages, we ought, to, uh, we ought not to think that God is more present and more active in one phase over another. Don't think that. Note how Isaiah describes this in our text, verse 3 and following. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain in the house of Israel. Now, by this time, you know that the, the kingdom of Israel was divided into the northern tribes, which is called Israel, the lower tribe of uh, Judah and ben Benjamin as Judah. So, so he addresses, when, he, when he's addressing things, he's talking about both groups of people. Let me read it again. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. All you who remain of the house of Israel, I'm talking to all of Palestine here, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried you since your birth, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I made you. I will carry you. I will sustain you. I will rescue you. Isaiah 46, verse 3 and 4. So what is God doing? He's doing a panoramic sweep of the human life cycle from the cradle to the last days of life, from you as an infant to you with gray hair and everything in between. And he is saying, listen to me now, he is saying, you have never been alone. You have never been alone. I have been with you right by your side from the beginning. In all that came your way, good or bad, I was there. The unseen and solid rock below the surface supporting the weight of your trials, be they scraped knees or broken bones or shoring up the weakness of your body when you were bedridden and recouping from surgery in the hospital, or helping the timidity of your faith as when Jesus rebuked his own disciples, saying, O ye of little faith, and sustaining you in the confusion and frustration of your failing memory in old age. You have never been alone. 
This tenacious love of God for his people was never predicated upon their performance or never dependent upon their obedience, never conditioned upon their faithfulness, but solely on God's sustaining grace. Neither sin nor the aging process changes that. Of God, the psalmist writes, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we're dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Psalm 103 verses 14 and 5. The religions of the world promote a pagan concept of God. That he must be appeased so he doesn't get angry or annihilate the race. And their idea of appeasement is their own sacrifices, be it money or time or ritual or animals. They're ignorant of the fact that God owns the university and he doesn't need anything like that from us. And because our hands are stained with sin, he accepts nothing from us. Isaiah chapter 1. The ultimate appeasement sacrifice has already been made, and you cannot improve upon it. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us All things, Romans 8, verse 32. If God's already given us his best, the absolute pinnacle of what a great gift would be, is he going to withhold lesser gifts? Paul chided the Galatian churches, who readily admitted, they admitted Christ as Savior. But they thought that to him, they had to add their own religious ceremonies and work. God did his part, now we must do our part, and together we will experience salvation. Does that sound familiar? There are many preachers this morning Standing in pulpits saying, God has done all that he can do for you. Now you must do the rest. He's done 90, I've heard of this. He's done 99, 44, 100% of what needs to be done. But you must do your part. Believe. Well, to the Galatians, Paul called that another gospel. That's his words, not mine. (coughs) Excuse me. Another gospel which is No gospel at all. Even stronger, he called it a perverted gospel. Ooh, that's strong. Our marketable skills are not what sustain us. It is God's watch care from the cradle to the grave. That's who sustains us. And he's been there 
all along, every step of the way. What then is the glory of God's unfailing love? Well, number one, once a child of God through faith in Christ, God does not disown us when we sin. Get this in your heart. Let let me read it again. Once a child of God through faith in Christ, God does not disown us when we sin. One day sin will be no more. We will not desire sin. We will not commit sin. But that day is not here yet. Our text in Isaiah is addressing the house of Jacob and, secondly, all you who remain in the house of Israel, you in the northern tribes. Verse 3, okay, what has happened to the majority in the house of Israel? Verse 1 and 2 describes the sin of idolatry for which God had brought the Babylonians against them. And we read in verse 2, they themselves go off into captivity. That's what happened to them. This is punishment for sin, is it not? Yes, it is, but I'll tell you what it is not. It's not the abandonment of God. It's not God disowning his people and walking away. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at verse 4. After saying that he has been with his people from their youth to their old age, he goes on to say, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you. I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Isaiah 46 verse 4. That's how we can say that. Look at the last verse of chapter 45. But in the Lord all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exalt. Well, whose righteousness will vindicate Israel and bring emancipation? Look at verse 12 and 13 of our text. You who are far from righteousness, I am bringing my righteousness near. It's not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Well, Isaiah is telling us this. God does not disown us when we sin, but covers us with the blanket of his own righteousness so that the sin we have cannot damn us. That's love. Boy, I'll tell you that. Not going to disown us. Might chastise us. Might spank us. Get us to think or rethink our positions. Bring us to repentance. Yes, all of that. But disown us? No. Not if we're his children. But then secondly, we need to learn that nothing else in all the universe can separate us from God's love. There's a lot of things that try. Listen to Paul's analysis. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I like Paul in this sense. He doesn't try to hide the hard questions. This is a hard question. He just puts it right out there for everybody to hear. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Because people are thinking that. If I do this, God will disown me. we got the people of the world saying, well, you did such and such. You're just as much a sinner as me. And on and on it goes. So he asks the hard question.
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists things. Just in case we didn't, we didn't get the import of everything he's trying to bring across. He says, shall trouble or hardship or danger? How about sword? That would be like what? A military takeover in Paul's day. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8. 35 and 5. That's a pretty extensive list. Kind of covers all the bases. Satan would have you fret and worry about your future. And Paul is saying what Isaiah says in our text. Don't worry. God's there. He has always been there. He will continue to be there, covering you in his righteousness for sins committed, verse 13, and sustaining and rescuing you from those wicked forces that would capture you and hold you fast and cause you to fear and worry, verse 4. In all honesty, hard days are coming, are they not? Historically, we move in cycles. Europe under Nazi occupation during World War II went through what? Deportations, hard times, misery, work camps that were more like death camps. Well, our salvation is not in atomic bombs. It's not in atomic bombs but in the almighty God of creation, the Savior and Lord for all who repent and believe. Yeah, but look at all those Jews who died. You know? God was victorious in all of that. And by the way, it wasn't just Jews who died. It was gypsies and Christians, the poor, the indigent, the non-capable of working group, women in particular, children in particular. What good are children? They're nothing. Gas them. They went right from the boxcars to the gas chambers. It's like Monopoly. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Just go right into the death chamber and die. Say, where are you getting this? You know, once in a while, you ought to go on Netflix and just look at some of the documentary films of Auschwitz, and Buchenwald, and all those prison camps, and just see how people were treated by the enemies of the world. The Jews, for their faith. Just because they were Jews. 
Yet God is with his true people. There's a price to pay for all that Cain of butchery. Justice will be done, is being done, will be done. Our God is righteous. He brings, as we have been learning here, he brings his righteousness to cover us and care for us. If we die for the faith, we die in the faith. And the Lord sustains us. Our Father, we thank you for your great grace. It is great. <laughs> it is marvelous. It passes uh, by our comprehension. It's hard for us to fathom how you take care of us. Some of these scriptures we've read today that you've been with us from the start, from conception, all the way through our life, even to the days of our gray hair and our cloudy memory and our aching bones. All the stresses of life, financial reverses, physical problems, you've been there with us. May we live in those circumstances in such a way as to bring glory to our God. May the enemy of our soul not use these adversities in life to cause us to disown God, to curse his name, and to walk away. No, Lord, may our adversities be that which James says to grant to us patience and patience, strength, and so on so that in the end we are better, not worse, because of your grace in the time of adversity. Thank you for each here today. We pray, Lord, for those that couldn't be here. Ask your blessing in the hour to come as we remember what it costs God to deal with our sin. In Jesus' name we ask these things, and for his glory. Amen. Our closing hymn is in the Trinity. That's the red hymnal. We'll sing together number 508. 508 in Trinity.
Amen. Wonderful hymn by Charles Wesley. Great hymn. One of our great hymn writers. All right, as our tradition, we'll take a 10-minute break. Uh, and then we'll regather here when you hear the music for the Lord's table. So 10-minute break and reassemble in, in about 10 minutes. Thank you. 